Welcome to the Determined Truth Podcast. What the truth? You can't handle the truth. Where we aim to explore questions of truth, the scriptures, and what it means for the church today. Here are your hosts, Rob Dalrymple and Vinny Angelo. Hey, and welcome in everyone, as we are in episode two of our exploration in Mark. We're doing a, a, a year or so, a year-ish in the New Testament. We're going to go through the New Testament and uh, explore different, all the different books could spend uh, three or four weeks on each one. Episode two of Mark. How do we want to, what do we want to talk about this? Uh, just talk about structure. How are we going to, what are we going to do differently today than we did uh, last week? Uh, today, we want to look at like some of Mark's features, like some of the ways that he wrote the book and the genius behind his writing. So that helps us understand how to kind of read the text itself. And then next week we'll go in, into even more detail. Okay. So it's going to be different than last week where we really set some of the stage and, yeah. and the, the setting and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. So this is actually structure, which is important as, as you read Mark, right? Yeah. This is, this is going to be one of those super fun times. I just love this lesson and this study because Mark is incredibly deep and rich and powerful. And then you start looking at this going, Oh my gosh, there's all this mm-hmm. there. I want to go read more and see what else I can find out. So I'm going to have a lot of fun. Yep. I hope you do. I don't really care if everybody else does. It's just, I'm, <laughs> I'm going to be having a fun time tonight. Right. If I'm asleep by the end of this, you could just, yeah, you know, could. And end, end the meeting. I can go without you. Yeah. I'll be all right. <laughs> nice. So we know, um, that all biblical writers have a, some sort of structure in mind, whether it's a gospel, a letter, uh, you know, they all, they have some sort of structure within that genre. And this is how they tell stories, right. Or communicate mm-hmm. something. And with Mark, it's actually pretty sophisticated. It's not just this random set of events that's happening. And so the better we understand his structure, cause he is being very deliberate in how mm-hmm. he's, he's putting some of these things out there. And I think by the end of tonight, people are going to, if they haven't really studied Mark, it's going to be fun because they're going to see yeah. Mark in a completely different way. Right. Um, but but this really helps us understand what he's trying to do. So when it comes to Mark, what are some of those noticeable features that really help us uh, grasp what he's saying? Yeah. So what we'll look at next time is like an outline of the gospel, Mark. How is it outlined and how do you organize his thing? But tonight we want to look specifically at what Mark does, what's called sandwiching. I love sandwiching. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Now, Mark is not, none of the gospels are telling us what happened in chronological order. So don't read Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John and go, oh, this happened first, this happened second, this happened third. And there's you know problems if you try to do that, but that's okay. Obviously, the birth is at the beginning in Luke and in Matthew, and the death is at the end. That's fine. But what's in the middle is actually organized for a particular purpose or a particular agenda of, of the author. One of the things that Mark does, what we call sandwiching. Mark often arranges his stories in accord with what's often called a sandwich technique. And sandwiching is when Mark intentionally interrupts a story with another story and then returns to the original story and finishes it. Now, this might seem confusing, but let's just look at some examples. And there's many of them in the Gospel of Mark. They're kind of like all over the place. The easiest one to do is actually Mark 5. And so if you're listening at home or wherever you might be, maybe not in the car, but anywhere else, you know, get your Bible out and kind of follow along here. In Mark 5, he tells the story of a synagogue official named Jairus, whose daughter was dying. And they come to Jesus saying, hey, Jesus, would you, would you help my daughter? Let's pick it up in Mark chapter 5. And I'm just going to read this because it's going to be significant. So if you're listening or what have you, and you don't have a Bible handy, just kind of pay attention. Uh, just kind of pay attention the best that you can. So Mark 5, it says in verse 21, of Mark 5, when Jesus had crossed over again in the boat, 
to the other side. A great multitude had gathered about him, and he stayed by the seashore. And one of the synagogue officials named Jairus came up, and upon seeing him, he fell at his feet. And he said, and treated him earnestly, saying, my little girl or daughter is at the point of death. Please come and lay your hands on her that she may get well and live. And he went off with him, and a great multitude was following him and pressing in on him. Now watch what happens in verse 25. And a woman who had had a hemorrhage for 12 years, or a bleeding problem for 12 years, had endured much at the hands of many physicians, and had spent all that she had and was not helped at all, but had rather grown worse. Upon hearing about Jesus, she came up in the crowd behind him and touched his cloak, for she thought, if I just touch his garments, I shall get well. Immediately the flow of her blood was dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her affliction. And immediately Jesus, perceiving in himself that the power had gone forth from him, turned around in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? His disciples said to him, you see the multitude pressing in on you, and you say, who touched me? And he looked around to see the woman who had done this. But the woman, fearing and trembling, aware of what, he had, what had happened to her, came up and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. Now back to, back to the other story, verse 35. While he was still speaking, they came from the house of the synagogue official, Jairus, saying, your daughter has died. Don't trouble the teacher any longer. But Jesus, overhearing what was being spoken, said to the synagogue official, don't be afraid any longer, just believe. And he allowed no one to follow with him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. And they came to the house of the synagogue official, and he beheld a commotion and people loudly weeping and wailing. And after entering in, he said to them, why make a commotion and weep? The child has not died. She's asleep. And they began laughing at him and putting them all out. He took along the child's daughter, uh, child's father and mother and his own companions, and he entered the room where the child was. He took the child by the hand, saying, and said to her, Talitha kum, which translated means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl rose and began to walk, for she was 12 years old. And immediately they were completely astounded, and he gave strict orders not to tell anyone about this, and he said something should be given to her to eat. So obviously this is a good illustration of a sandwich, because Jesus is on his way to Jairus' house, uh, to take care of his little girl. And then all of a sudden she's interrupted by this woman who has had a bleeding problem and she touches mm -hmm. Jesus and she's healed. Jesus then says, okay, who touched me? The woman said, and by the way, it says she, she was fearing and trembling. She fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And Jesus said, daughter, your faith has made you well, go in peace and be healed of your affliction. Now that interruption apparently and the delay of Jesus and not going to the little girl's house in time meant the little girl died in the meantime. Mm -hmm. At the moment Jesus was speaking to the woman, people from Jairus' house arrived and said, you know, your daughter has died. So now Mark returns to the story about Jairus' daughter again, right? And so there, there's your sandwich then. Now, for no apparent reason, the story has some oddities in here, because for no apparent reason, Jesus seems like he allows no one else in the house, mm -hmm. only Peter, James, and John, and the girl's parents. They arrive at the home. He expels everyone from the home. They go in. He raises her up by touching her, and she is well. Okay, so the, the you know you're doing a good job of presenting the flow, and I guess I could say, okay, yeah, I guess there's a sandwich here. But how does that help me understand anything? Is Mark just trying to be clever, or is there actually a theological point that he's trying to make? Yeah, there's a very significant theological point that he's trying to make. 
And maybe what we should do actually right now is let's look at the next passage. Even there's a chapter break here, chapter six, but let's go to the next passage, mm -hmm. bring that in. And then we'll kind of go back to these stories because when we unearth these stories, there's a lot of treasures in them. So let's go to Mark chapter six, verse one. I'm, and, I'm Mark, and Mark didn't write chapter break. So remember, this yes. is something inserted later to help us. So no, that's, right. that's the, right. Don't let that interrupt your, uh, your, your study when you're reading this at home. That's right. So, and well, let me actually make a note on that. Now, if you're doing like a daily devotional time, whether you're following the daily devotions that we, that we're giving out here with the German truth or whether you're doing on your own, or you just have a practice of reading the Bible from time to time, it's understand you, you have to start and stop sometimes. Sure, right? yeah. And sometimes you only have a certain amount of time and you just stop. And the chapter breaks are a good place to stop because you can remember where you were the next day. But what I would recommend actually is kind of before you start the next chapter, kind of refresh yourself on what you had just read so that you can then pick up today's lesson by reminding yourself what you had done yesterday. Mm -hmm. That might help you also. All right, Mark chapter six. I've been reading from the New American Standard. And it says, he went out from there and he came into his hometown. His disciples followed him. When the Sabbath had come, he began to teach in the synagogue, and the many listeners were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things, and what's this wisdom given him, and such miracles as those performed by his hands? Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown, and among his own relatives, and his own household. And he could do no miracle there. Mm -hmm except he laid his hands upon a few sick people and hurt and healed them. And he wondered the, at their unbelief as he was going about the villages. All right. So now we're going to bring that story up into this conversation here in just a minute. But I want to have that kind of sitting in the background for it. The first thing will be this. Let's go back to the chapter five. We have two stories and there's some parallels between these two stories, even mm -hmm. though one interrupts the others. Did you notice any of these parallels? Yeah. So, I mean, you have, they're, they're both involving women. Both involving women, that's right. Correct. An older woman, a younger woman, uh, both were inflicted with some sort of medical condition. That's correct. Yeah. You have, uh, and they both are, you know, you could say they're both seeking to be made well, but it's, it's Jairus is doing it on behalf of his okay. daughter, whereas the 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 woman herself went and, uh, you know, sought after Jesus. Yeah. You have, let's see, I'm trying to look here. That's fine. That's good. I'm, I'm a list guy. So you're, you're not hitting my learning style right now, but it's fine. You, you have a huge component, and, and this comes out in chapter six, uh, this component of faith. Yes. Of believing, right? right? Because because to have faith and to believe, it's the same word. It's just as it being used as a noun or a verb. Uh, I'm assuming right. I, I didn't do the, the background of this, but usually yeah. that's the way it, it's going to come out. So that's a huge aspect of it, which right off the bat gives you the key to chapter six. That's which right. Is, that's, that's right. Right. Is that, yeah. Am I getting ahead of things now? Or am I a little bit. That's okay. 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 Yeah, you're okay. Good. But, but uh, yeah, but it's this, hey, who has faith? Who believes that Jesus can do these things? You know, oh, it's it's Jairus and his family, and it's going to be this woman. Okay. And I'm sure there's more parallels as well. But So how about we do this? Let's detour from this conversation for a mm -hmm. second and pick up on that last thought of yours, and then we're going to go back to this one. Okay. So Mark, I mentioned a little bit, he's pasting stories together for a particular purpose. Mm -hmm. They didn't necessarily happen in this particular order. So if we go back to the end of chapter four for a second, at the end of chapter four, he tells the story of him being on a boat with his disciples, verse 35 and following. And it says in verse 37, a fierce gale of wind arose and the waves were breaking over the boat and the disciples were afraid. And they woke Jesus up saying in verse 38, teacher, are you not, don't you care that we're perishing? He rebukes the wind. The wind dies down, verse 39. And then verse 40 says, why are you so afraid? How is it that you have no faith? 
and verse 41, they became very much afraid and said, who is this? So there's our first story where, where they're confronted with fear and their reaction is, who is this guy? Now, the next story in Mark 5 is the story of the Gerasene demoniac. And Jesus, of course, heals this guy. You know, this guy was shackled, but he kept breaking the shackles and freaking everybody out in the town. Jesus heals the guy by casting the demon whose name was Legion, and that's something we'll bring up in a few weeks, into the pigs. And the pigs run down the hill into the, into the sea, which means the people in the village have just lost massive amounts of, of income. I mean, this is a lot of money. And so Jesus is not good for business. And it says they were afraid. Uh, let me look it up now here, because we're just kind of ad-libbing a little bit on this one. In verse 15, it says they were frightened. And what do they do? They said, verse 18, would you leave? Would you just please get out of here? Our third story is of this woman who has a bleeding problem who comes and touches Jesus. Now, she was hoping that because of the crowd, now here's the situation, by the way, she is unclean because if you have a bleeding problem and any kind of blood coming out of you makes you unclean, ceremoniously unclean if it's a woman during that time of the month, whatever it might be. And the only way you can get cleansed is to go to the temple, to have certain sacrifices done for you. You get cleansed and now you're okay. The problem with being unclean is that if you touch somebody else, they become unclean. And by the way, this is a little uh, side note. In the Gospels, when Jesus touches the unclean or the unclean touch Jesus, he doesn't become unclean. They become clean. Mm -hmm. So it's like, whoa, what's going on here? So the idea of her touching Jesus is like she's taking a massive social risk because she shouldn't be touching anyone because she's making them all unclean. And there's such a crowd around him that she thinks she can sneak in this crowd and like grab his garment really quickly. She's kind of touched other people too. So now it's like, uh, who touched me? And she's like, oh no, I'm in trouble. She is really, really afraid, right? And it says that. It says, uh, verse uh, 31, uh, 31, Jesus says, who touched me? And the woman, verse 33, fearing and trembling, mm -hmm. aware of what happened to her, she fell down and told him the whole truth. Mm -hmm. Ah, contrasting the disciples and contrasting the men in Gadara, mm -hmm. she and her fear tells the whole truth. And so that actually becomes another theme or thematic moment here. So we, he, he put these stories together to illustrate what do you do when you're afraid? The disciples are like, well, we don't even know who this guy is. The people in Gadara were like, would you just please leave? The woman who has every reason to be legitimately afraid falls down and tells them the whole truth. And that's like, that's really good preaching, by the way, if you want to make a sermon on that one. All right, so, 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 so a question good. then, to, yeah. an observation question. If the unclean woman touches Jesus and that would make him unclean, does Jesus become unclean in the next story when he holds the hand of a dead person? No, because throughout the scriptures, Jesus never becomes unclean. He well, only makes those people but, clean. So, oh, oh okay, like, okay. yeah, when he touches the, the girl. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So when you yes, touch a dead no, person, she becomes that. clean again. The girl becomes clean also. But socially, right? I guess you'd say yes. theologically of, of the first century, in, in the mind of his Jewish friends, they would say, don't touch the dead person. That's going to make you unclean. Yeah, but he made her alive. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So therefore, he, he probably doesn't mm -hmm. have to go to the temple mm -hmm. and do that. That's, and there's another parallel between the two mm -hmm. that you didn't notice, by the way. But yeah. so the parallels between the two are 
And by the way, I didn't get, I gave any notes, but I asked him, Hey, don't necessarily <laughs> read them because mm-hmm. then you could just kind of go along in the conversation. So, so I passed the test. You, you passed the test very well. I Both did better than when I, women. Better than when I did Greek with you. But anyway, <laughs> well, that's, yeah, you didn't really pass that test, but I had to let you like, I, I felt so bad. I didn't want to make you take it over again. The next <laughs> there you time. go. Both stories about women. Both women are unclean, mm-hmm. right? The woman with a bleeding problem, the little girl's dead. And touching a dead body makes you unclean as well. For like, So when you bury somebody, you're dead for that day until the sun goes down. Both women are touched by Jesus. Both stories have the number 12. The woman had a bleeding mm-hmm. problem for 12 years and the girl was 12 years old. Mm-hmm. Uh, both are called daughter. It's Jairus's daughter. And the woman, Jesus says to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Now we could go a little bit further too, because there's, there's some contrast because Jairus is a man and, and the woman is a woman. Jairus is named and the woman's not named. So mm. you can see some social things going on there also. But very clearly, the fact that both are called daughter, the fact that both have the number 12 being used, Mark's intentionally putting these two stories together as a sandwich. You know, it's interesting too, now that you mentioned that, just as an observation of Mark, and I'd want to do a bigger study on this. Mark also does not name the woman in chapter 14, who did the wonderful thing for Jesus, who will always be remembered, right? That's that's correct. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, The the woman who anoints Jesus uh, for his burial. Mm -hmm. And Jesus says, what she's done will be remembered forever. And yet she's not named. And we can, and we have to go to another gospel. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, anyway. Yeah. Because that is really an interesting thing there. Yeah. All right. So. One of the primary things that happens with a sandwich is that the story that's in the middle. So what we mean by sandwich is you have a story that begins, that's the bread. And then the same story you come back to at the end, that's the other piece of bread. And then in the middle is the peanut butter and jelly or the turkey and whatever you might have on turkey sandwiches. (laughs) So the woman with the bleeding problem is the peanut butter and jelly. And the story in the middle of these sandwiches is always the key to understanding what's on the outside. And the key to understanding this particular story, of course, is that the woman was afraid and yet she had faith so when we read the story of jairus's family and or jesus going to jairus's family and he expels everybody why did he why did he only take peter james and john and the girl's parents because everybody else didn't believe Mm. why when he goes to nazareth could he not do any miracles there it's like he could he just didn't because they didn't believe and so we see how this actually illustrates for us what's going on. And so Mark is like this really clever way of telling a story by framing it like this. And so the answer is, hey, stop. Uh, Don't be afraid any longer. Only believe, Jesus Mm -hmm. says to Jairus there. Uh, So the need for faith is why he expels everybody else for the home and why they could do no miracles. And therefore, there's your answer to the story. What's the significance of this for us? And the answer is, we need to have faith. We need to trust that Christ can and will do what we're asking him to do. Mm Mm-hmm. Interesting. Okay. So that's one example of a sandwich in the gospel of Mark. Is that the only time it happens or do we see this again? All over the gospel. It's everywhere. Sometimes I mean, there's a few times you might be like, well, I'm making one up here to kind of make it fit. But, you know, Peter denies knowing Jesus and then Mark cuts away to Jesus being on trial. And then he goes back to Peter denying knowing Jesus mm-hmm. like, oh, wow, Jesus telling the truth and being killed for this is sandwiched around Mark's, uh, Peter's denying of Jesus, for example. Mm -hmm. But last week we mentioned one, or the beginning of one, we mentioned this obscure verse in Mark chapter 11. So let's turn there because this is a fun one as well. Like I said, I'm going to have fun all night. So we haven't even gotten to the really good stuff yet. Uh, But Mark chapter 11, Jesus enters Jerusalem. And we mentioned that his first time entering Jerusalem, according to the gospel of Mark, 
And verse 11 of chapter 11 says that he entered Jerusalem and he looked around. He came into the temple and he looked around. And then he left because it was already late. And we're like, wait a minute. Why is he leaving? What, what's going on here? This doesn't make any sense. If you're going to tell us that Jesus went to the temple and looked around, why tell us that if you're not going to tell us what he saw? Well, then we come to Mark chapter 11, verse 12. Now, here's where we're going to find our answer. And that is, it's going to be a sandwich. In Mark chapter 11, verse 12, we're going to see the sandwich. So here we go. Mark 11, verse 12. On the next day, when they had left for Bethany, he became hungry. Seeing at a distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to perhaps to see if he would find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it's not the season for figs. And he said, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples were listening. Verse 15, then they came to Jerusalem and he entered the temple. And verse 11, he enters Jerusalem and he comes into a temple. And verse 15, he enters Jerusalem and comes into the temple. And in the middle of that, Jesus curses a fig tree because it had no fruit. Mm-hmm. So verse 11 now, when he entered Jerusalem, what did he see? Or he, maybe what did he not see? Uh, he, he did not see fruit in the temple. He did not see fruit. Mm-hmm. He did not see fruit. Now, let's keep going because it's actually a, there's actually a sandwich inside of us. It's like a double decker here. It's like um, a Big Mac. It's like, a, yeah, here we go. Piece of bread in the middle. So Jesus goes in. We won't go through this whole episode. But he goes into Jerusalem in the temple and he overthrows the money changers tables. This is often called the cleansing of the temple. It's not a, it's not a cleansing because when he left the temple, they just picked the tables back up and went back on the business. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's actually what we call an enacted parable. He's actually doing a parable, but he's doing it, not saying it. And when he does, he throws everything all over the, all over the place saying, uh, what's going to happen to this temple is what just happened to your tables. Mm-hmm. Mainly it's going to be destroyed. So he's throwing all the tables all over the place. And he says in verse 17, because it's written, my house should be called a house of prayer for all the nations and you've made it a robber's den. And it was when he went to the temple in verse 11, he didn't see the nations in there praying. Mm-hmm. It wasn't a place of worship for the nations. It, it's a place where the robbers are hiding out. So here you go. Now, the chief priest and the, the scribes heard this. They began seeking how they might destroy him. When evening came, verse 19, they would go out of the city. Verse 20, as they were passing by in the morning, they saw the fig tree. Ah, he withers, he cursed the fig tree, right? Verses 12 through 14, I think that was. He enters the temple and makes havoc of the money changer tables. And then he sees the fig tree. Mm-hmm. So what's going on? And the answer is the fig tree's withering because of their actions in the temple and because of the fact that they uh, are not making this a hustle player for the nations. So, uh, now we'll go back and look at the, in verse 20, it says, as they were passing by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered up from the roots. Verse 21, Peter said, hey, Rabbi, look, the fig tree, which you curse is withered. And Jesus says, have faith in God. And then he goes on to say, by the way, if you want this mountain to be thrown into the sea, it can be thrown into the sea. And if you don't, if you believe that and don't doubt, it'll, it's going to happen. What's he talking about? Well, a mountain is a common symbol for the temple because the temple is always on the top of a mountain. Temple is, Jesus goes in and and, uh, wreaks havoc in the temple and and causes chaos and throws the tables all over the place. Fig trees withered. He tells the disciples, if you want a mountain to be thrown in the sea, it'll be done. So it's sandwich after sandwich after sandwich after sandwich. And the point of that actually is, or sandwich within the side of a sandwich, is have faith in God and trust And if you do so, the fruit that's evidence of that is that you're bringing the nations in to worship me. 
and they haven't done so. We can go on because there's, there's more to it, but, but that'll kind of, I hope illustrates the point here. Yeah. Well, and even refer, referencing back to uh, verse, is it 17? Uh, you know, my house shall be called a house of prayer. I mean, that's a citation from Isaiah yeah. <laughs> and you, yeah. you have that theme all throughout Isaiah, which is like, Hey, you guys are going to be <laughs> bringing in the nations uh, to worship me. So anyway, there's just, that's right. Yeah. And a whole old Testament background there that I think we talked about last week when, you know, when, when you cite part of a verse or something, it's like, it's, it's recalling a lot more that's happening. Yeah. And I'm sure that people aren't just going to be hearing my house is a house of prayer and thinking Jesus is just ripping off a, a phrase. This is recalling the major prophet of, of the old Testament. That's uh, right. and, and that's just going to be really resonating with them on so many levels. That's right. Yeah. Now there's other, there's other examples too. This, the John the Baptist uh, being beheaded is, is actually in chapter six of the gospel of Mark, at the beginning of the story, the disciples are sent out on their mission in Mark six, verses seven, I think through 13 or whatever. Then you have Mark six, 14 through 29, John the Baptist being beheaded. And then Mark chapter six, verse 30, the disciples come back and report to him all that they had done. You're like, what? The disciples being sent out, the disciples coming back. And in the middle, John the Baptist being beheaded. And you're like, what's going on? And the answer is, Mark is linking the mission of the disciples and the martyrdom of John the, of John the Baptist, hmm. meaning guess what, what happened to John the Baptist might actually happen to you also. Hmm. So it's, it's incredible the way he's doing this. So very, very significant. Now there's one more I want to show you. So let's, let's kind of get into that. <laughs> okay. Well, does it have to do with uh, feedings? Yes, yeah, sure does. Okay. Yes, so, let's go so, so there's only every gospel account doesn't contain every single Correct. detail, uh, you know, in parallel or, or mirrored. And that would, that that's good because that would make for a boring four books. Cause it would just be the exact same. Right. Yeah. So the only miracle that you have recorded in all four of the gospel is the feeding of the 5,000. Right. But what a lot of people don't realize is that Mark and Matthew record two miracles like this yeah. <laughs> with, with meaning. So in Mark chapter six and in Mar Matthew 14, you have Jesus feeding 5,000 with five loaves and two fish. And then Mark eight and in Matthew 15, he feeds 4,000 with seven loaves and a few fish. All right. So does it seem weird that yes. these two feedings, you know, these miracle feedings exist and, and it's just kind of anticlimactic as well. Cause you have 5,000 and then 4,000 uh, like wh why tell us about both? Why deescalate in, in Mark's gospel account? It just seems strange. Yeah, exactly. If, if the idea of the feedings is to tell us that Jesus can make bread and multiply it and feed the people, there's no need to tell us that he did it twice. In fact, the second time is actually less impressive because mm -hmm. think about it. He fed 4,000 and he had seven loaves of bread. Whereas the first time he did 5,000 with five loaves of bread. It, it, it's, you know, what's going on? Why is he telling us this the second time? Now, what you're going to notice is that it's in Mark chapter six and the reference is Mark 6, 33 through 44, the feeding of the 5,000. And Mark 8, 1 through 9, the feeding of the 4,000. And in the middle, ah, there's, there you go, is, mm -hmm. and we'll have to get to that in a little bit. So, you know, what's, what's in the middle? Why is it in the middle? What's going on? So let's actually look at the story of the two feedings first, and then we'll talk about the middle and the, and the sandwich and stuff like that. Now, the presence of the second account, first off, as I mentioned already, it just raises other questions. It's like, you know, why do the disciples in Mark chapter 8, if you turn to Mark chapter 8, verse 1, so, so Mark chapter eight begins this way. It says, in those days, there was again a large crowd and they had nothing to eat. And Jesus called his disciples and said, hey, you know, I feel compassion for the people because they've been with me for three days and they have nothing to eat. If I send them away hungry into their homes, they're going to faint on the way. 
and I'm just going to skip down now. Verse four says, where will anyone be able to find enough bread in this desolate place to satisfy these people? And you're like, guys, don't you remember? I mean, all you got to do is go back one chapter <laughs> and he fed 5,000 with a kid's lunch. It doesn't make any sense. Where will we be able to find enough bread to feed all these people? Didn't they learn from the first feeding? Like, what's going on? However, a close reading of the two accounts tells us, okay, Mark's wanting us to read the second account in light of the first account. And if you read the two accounts, there's a number of commonalities, and we won't go through the whole episode now because it'll just take kind of, kind of too long. But in both passages, it says that he feeds the people out of compassion. So we just read that in Mark 8, verse 2, but it's also in Mark 6, verse 34. In both places, the story is told kind of the same way, right? Recline in the grass. And, and similarly reclining, Mark 6, verse 40, Mark 8, verse 6. In both episodes, he gives the food to the disciples and says, hey, you guys feed them. In both accounts, it says the people ate and were satisfied. And in both accounts, they pick up leftovers. We want to pick up on that in a second. And in both accounts, Jesus dismisses the crowd and he gets on a boat and leaves. So there's clearly the way Mark is telling these stories that something's going on and he wants us to read the two in light of each other. And actually, it's going to be much deeper than this. So here's what, here's what I mean. I think the most significant thing in these two stories actually begin, uh, occurs at the beginning of the first story. So go, go back in your Bible to Mark 6, and let's kind of look at the beginning of, this, of the first account. In Mark chapter 6, it says in verse 33, that, you know, people come and, coming and going, and there's a great, great crowd, verse 34, he feels compassion for them, but it's already late. And he says, you know, hey, guys, that's the place is already quite late, verse 35. And so, you know, sending them away to the, verse 36, to the countryside and the villages, that's not going to work. So Jesus said, verse 37, he says, why don't you give them something to eat? And they said, shall we spend 200 denarii, which is a, a day's wages, so almost you know, three quarters of a year or two thirds of a year's wages, and give them something to eat? I think that's the most significant statement there. And we kind of gloss over it because like, oh, you know, silly Jesus. He's just using that as a pretense to have a conversation with them. No, I think Jesus actually meant you give them something to eat. And they're like, we can't do that. And he's like, look, yes, you can. So let me show you how to do it. So he said, okay, how many loaves do you have? Go and look. And they said five and two fish. All right. He says, okay, have everybody sit down on the green grass. They sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties, and there's something significant there because it reminds us of Moses and the Israelites back on, mountain, back on Mount Sinai. Nonetheless, he takes the two loaves, uh, the five loaves and the two fish, he blesses them, and he gave them to the disciples. No, they're not coming to Jesus for the food. The disciples are giving the food to the people. So when Jesus said, hey, you give them something to eat, that's actually what they do. They just didn't know that they had a source for providing the food. So we're kind of skipping ahead, but we'll kind of come back to that. Now it says, verse 42, they were all eight and were satisfied. And then they picked up 12 baskets full of broken pieces. And you're like, well, okay. Why did he do that? Now then, so the, the two stories raise all these questions. In both stories, they pick up leftovers. In Mark 6, 43, I just mentioned, they picked up 12 baskets full of broken pieces and also some fish. In Mark 8, verse 8, it says they picked up seven large baskets of what was left over. And the first question is, well, why did Jesus make extra food? I mean, if Jesus is doing a miracle to prove that he can feed the multitudes, he should have known he made enough and he could just stop. Why did he make more? Mm -hmm. 
furthermore, why did Mark tell us that he made extra? I know if, if Mark doesn't tell us that he made extra food, we wouldn't ask the question. He could have made extra food. Mark just doesn't tell us. So why did Mark tell us? Not only did Mark tell us that, but he tells us specifically there were 12 baskets and seven baskets. And we're like, well, I kind of think that 12 and seven are important numbers in the Bible, right? I mean, Do but they ever they, show up? Come on, yeah, I can't think of anything. But, yeah, but you're thinking, but this is just a narrative. This is just a story of Jesus doing a miracle. It's not the book of Revelation. It's not the prophecy in Ezekiel. So 12 and seven can't mean anything here. It's just, it's like, no, it can't be coincidence, can it? So the way to know that something's going on now actually is to go to Mark chapter eight, verses 13 through 21. And it was after the story of the feeding of the multitudes in Mark chapter eight, he fed 4,000. We skip down now to Mark chapter eight, <clears throat> verse 10, he enters a boat, Mark chapter eight, verse 10. Verse 11, the Pharisees began to argue with him saying, hey, give us a sign, which is really crazy because he just fed 4,000, right? You're like, <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay, what? what do you mean? Give me a sign. All right. And Jesus says, okay, why is this generation asked for a sign? No sign's going to be given it. Leaving them, he went away to the other side. Verse 14, they had forgotten to take bread. <laughs> and they didn't have more than one loaf with them in the boat. All right, now you're like, wait a minute. That sounds like a contradiction. <laughs> exactly. There you go. Very good. Do they have a loaf in the boat or not? Because it says they forgot to take bread. And let's keep going. Verse 15, Jesus says, watch out for the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And you're like, okay, leaven, that's bread. Leaven is the yeast that makes the bread rise. And verse 16, they began to discuss the fact with one another that they had no bread. You're like, wait a minute. Do they have bread or not? Because mm -hmm. it says they didn't have more than one loaf in the boat. But it says they forgot to take bread. And now they're arguing with the fact that they have no bread. And Jesus, look at verse 17. Jesus says, why do you discuss the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet see or understand? Do you have a hardened heart? Like, oh, ding, 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 ding. If we read the gospel more carefully, we'll notice that when Jesus tells a parable, he says, do you see or understand? Mm -hmm. So what he's done might be, a, you know, okay, it's a historical event that Mark's narrating an actual event that really occurred, but there's a deeper significance to it. And even quotes Isaiah, having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? And don't you remember? Verse 19, when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you pick up? They said 12. I'm like, ah, see, I knew it was important. We knew the number 12 was important. We're not sure why it was important. It's got to be important because Mark's bringing it up again in his, in, in his gospel. And now it's in the mouth of Jesus, by the way, right? Verse 20. When I broke the seven for the 4,000, how many large baskets full of broken pieces did you pick up? They said seven. And he said, do you not yet understand? I, I, I just want to interject real quick. Yeah. I, I taught through the gospel of Mark, I don't know, maybe four years ago or something on my Sunday school class, adult Sunday school class. And once we got through the section, I asked the class, so how, like, so I, I said, was there bread in, or how many loaves did they have in the boat? And the class literally was split. They were arguing with each other. There's probably like 40, 50 people in here because wow. half the class was like, they had no bread. And the other half was like, yes, they had a loaf of bread. <laughs> and so yeah. this whole thing, they, like they were arguing over the, like the semantics of it. And they couldn't get past and actually understand what Mark was trying to get here. It was a great moment for me. I loved it because okay. literally it was like a Jerry Springer show. They were just arguing with each other. It was great. 
And, and I'm wondering now, right now, even there's someone listening saying, okay, I don't get what you're saying. Yeah, this, yeah, okay. this passage just does not make any sense. Did they have bread? Did they not have bread? This I don't understand the point of uh, the section in Mark 8. Okay, very good. And let's, so let's answer it for, for the listeners. <laughs> oh, we should maybe make them pay for this, though. This, yeah, there should be an extra pay thing. Yeah. No, okay, remember, we're not, we're not going to put anything behind the paywall because oh, okay, the poor right. can't have access to it. And only the rich people can find out what the answer to the question <laughs> is. Like, that's just not Jesus, is it? Yeah, right. There you uh, go. So... The first thing is this, Mark's readers, the readers of Mark's gospel know the answer. That's why Mark doesn't tell them. Mm -hmm. Because the story ends with, don't you understand now? And Mark's readers are like, oh, I get it. You know, because you told us this one before. But we don't know what Mark told them before, other than what he wrote in the gospels. We're like, Mm -hmm. "Uh, what's going on? So we need to figure this out. And we can figure this out. Let's go back to the first question. Did they have a loaf of bread in the boat or not? I would say yes, absolutely. Okay, this, they I, did. I, just, I, I, I seriously am just reliving a great moment yes, by teaching because that class right. was so passionate. Anyway, yes, they, they did. Had, they absolutely had. What was the loaf. loaf? It was the bread of life. It was Jesus. <laughs> they had Jesus in the boat. So if we go back to Mark 6, verse 37, you give them something to eat. They're like, how are we going to do that? Jesus is like, I'm standing right here. Mm-hmm. All you need is me. If you have me, you can feed them. Mm-hmm. So, okay, let's go. Let's kind of go back into some more details on this now. Uh, and you see why this, this is so crazy. By the way, there's actually a story about a healing of a blind man that we need to actually let's look at that one now before we go any further. And this is <laughs> you are having fun here. Oh, here. I don't, and this isn't even in our notes, right? So, yeah. or my notes that I didn't let you uh, look at beforehand. Yeah. So here we go, verse 21, 22. They came 22, to Bethsaida yeah. and they brought a blind man to Jesus and implored him to touch him, taking the blind man by the hand. He brought him out of the village and after spitting on his eyes and laying hands on him, he said, don't, do you see anything? He looked up and said, I see men for I see them like trees walking around. And he laid his hands on his eyes again and he looked intently and was restored and he began to see everything clearly. What? I mean, Jesus, you just multiplied bread and fed 5,000, which by the way, 5,000 might be only the men that are counted. So it might've been 12, 15, Mm -hmm. who knows how many thousands of people there. With a, with a kid's sack lunch, by the way, the, the fish are like little small fishes that has the kid's sack lunch, little, little tiny loaves of bread, not like big sourdough loaves of bread that you buy at, at the store for oh, those, those of you on the East Coast who know what sourdough loaves look like, but nonetheless, that's okay. It's a kid's sack lunch. Why did he not heal the guy the first time? He needs a mulligan on this one. Yeah. Why did he have to touch him twice before he healed him? In verse 23, it says, do you see anything? That's mm-hmm. the question he was asking the disciples. Do mm-hmm. you see? Do you not yet understand? And the man's answer is, well, I kind of see a little bit, but it's foggy. And what that's telling us is that's exactly what's happening with the disciples. Hmm. They're seeing it, but it's still foggy. What I mean by that is when we go to Mark 8, the end of Mark 8, Mark 9, Mark 10, and what's following is Jesus is going to reveal himself to the disciples. So the very next story is, Okay, who do you think I am? Well, who do they think I am? Well, some say you're Elijah, some say one of the prophets. Okay, good. Who do you think I am? You're the Christ. Ah, Peter sees clearly, doesn't he? No, because the very next thing Jesus says is, okay, guess what? You're right. I am the Christ and don't tell anybody. And I'm going to go to Jerusalem and be killed. And Peter's like, what? And it says, verse 32, Peter took him aside to begin to rebuke him. What What that means is you don't understand what kind of Christ I am. You see that I'm the Christ, but you don't understand that means that I'm going to suffer because that's what the Christ does. He suffers for the sake of the nations. 
And so you don't see clearly yet. You only see a little bit. And then Jesus lays hands on the man again, and he sees everything clearly. Ah, that's not going to happen until Pentecost in the book of Acts when the Holy Spirit comes. So you can see how all these stories are building upon one another. And what we said earlier was, he's not telling these stories in chronological order mm -hmm. to make a point. He's making a point by saying, look, if you put all this together, now do you see what's going on? All right, so let's go back. Why, were the, why did he make extra bread? Why did he tell us that he made extra bread? Is there something significant about the 12 loaves and the seven loaves? And what is it? We know it's something important because Jesus says, hey, how many loaves did, I pick, did you pick up? How many baskets did you pick up? 12, seven. Okay, do you get it? Uh, no. Okay. Now, remember, the moral of the story is you give them something to eat. So here's the significance. The significance is that the five loaves, the, the seven loaves, well, the seven is the number for the nations, for wholeness and completion and perfection and totality and for all of creation, the seven days of creation. It's, it's this number that represents uh, totality or fullness. Twelve is the number for the people of God. And that's pretty easy and pretty obvious. Twelve tribes in the Old Testament, twelve apostles in the New Testament. You know, if we were to go to the book of Revelation right now. 24 and elders. Twist my arm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Twist my arm if you want me to go to the book of Revelation. Right. But 12 is all over the place for the, mm -hmm. for the people of God, the new Jerusalem. Mm -hmm. uh, the number 12 actually occurs 12 times in the description of the new Jerusalem in Revelation 21, 22. So it, it, it's all over the place. So what happens actually is the first time they pick up 12 baskets full of broken pieces. And if we study the geography of the gospel of Mark, what we're going to find out actually is it is on the Jewish side of the Sea of Galilee. I just fed Israel mm. and you picked up 12 baskets of broken pieces of bread. And now you have enough bread to feed Israel too. Now, not literally in the bread they picked up because it's going to go bad and old and moldy, but it's a parable. Remember, it's, it's, also, it's also parabolic because he says, don't you see or understand? Then they go to the other side of the sea. And we know that they're on the other side of the sea because in Mark chapter eight, after he does the miracle of the feeding of the, of the 4,000, it says, they got back into a boat and they got, and they come to the other side of the, of the lake and the other side of the lake and is verse 10. It says down Manutha, that's on the Jewish side of the lake. That means that they were on the Gentile side of the lake earlier when he fed the, the 4,000 and they picked up seven baskets of bread. He was on the Gentile side of the lake. In other words, I just fed the nations and you picked up enough baskets of broken pieces of bread so that you now have bread to feed the nations also. But they don't get it. So they get in the boat. Oh, man, we've got to take bread. Which it's like, well, so what? When you get to Capernaum, go get some bread. I mean, what's the significance of they forgot to take bread? But then Mark says, well, they didn't have a loaf. And so Mark's inserting that into the story. And that loaf is Jesus. And the more the story is, you give them something to eat. And, and the reason why I think this is so important is that when we talk about Christianity and discipleship or the, or the gospel, we've so often have made the gospel, this gospel of conversion only, right? We've mm -hmm. talked about this before, and we're certainly going to talk about when we get into the gospel of Matthew in a few weeks, this idea of being converted only and going to heaven someday and, and getting raptured out of here, even escaping from this world. And Jesus's answer is I'm the King and I'm establishing my kingdom, but I'm not going to complete the job of taking the gospel of the nations. That's going to be your job. And you need to know how to feed the people now. So he really did mean it. You give them something to eat. And like, well, how are we going to do that? All right, I'll show you how you're going to do that. The source of bread is Jesus. 
All you need is Jesus. And now you take Jesus to the nations and go. And it's the disciples that are being called to go and feed the nations, meaning it's our task to go feed the nations. And all we need is Jesus and we can do it. So I had a lot of fun with that. I think that's brilliant. And this is incredible the way the story is actually, is actually deeper. Now, if we want to confirm that, all we have to do is go to Mark 7. Because in Mark 7, what seems to have nothing to do with anything, he declares all food clean. So Mark 7, verse 19. Mark 7, verse 19, he declares all foods clean. Now, the significance of that is that what makes a Gentile, and a Gentile is just a word for the nations, everybody else. In the Jewish world, there's, there's us and there's them. Us are the Jewish nation, and them are everybody else, which is the word for the nations in the Greek, it's ethnos, but it can be just translated as Gentiles. What makes a Gentile unclean is that they eat unclean food based on the, the food laws of the Old Testament. Therefore, they're unclean, which means you can't go into a Gentile's home. So what makes a Gentile unclean is that they eat unclean food. And what that means then is that you can't go into a Gentile's home and eat with them. A, a good Jew would also mean that you wouldn't even let them into your home to eat with them. Well, that can't work in Christendom. Once Jesus says, okay, now go out all nations, well, I'll go to all the nations, but I can't enter their home. Or I'll go to all nations, but they can't enter our home. Because mm -hmm. remember, the church met every week and they ate communion together. And so if the Jews think all food's not clean, therefore they're unclean because they eat unclean foods, we can't eat with them. He has to declare all foods clean in order for the mission to go out to the nations. In fact, he declares all foods clean. And the next story, he meets a Gentile woman and the woman says, my little girl has a demon. Would you cast a demon out? And she's like, hey, look, I came for the people of Israel. But he doesn't say it that way. He says it in a kind of an, in a parabolic way. He says, verse 27, he says, let the children be satisfied first, for it's not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Now, that's a parable. You're like, because we're like, what do you mean, Jesus? She just wants the demon cast out of her little girl. And you're like waxing eloquently about some child and bread to the dogs. Now note the word bread. Mm -hmm. we're, still on, we're still on the same theme. It's linking all these stories together. Right, well, children is a reference to the people of Israel. And dogs was actually a common Jewish way of referring to the nations. Mm. In other words, you want me to take bread that belongs to the The miracles I'm doing are for the Israel. I came for the Jewish people now. I'll send my disciples out to the nations later. And she's like, okay, look, I'm not asking you to go to the nations right now. I'm just asking you for a crumb. So the woman's response, by the way, is she answered and said to him, yes, Lord, but even the dogs eat the, uh, under the table, eat the crumbs, the children's crumbs, which means it's the only example in the Bible of someone understanding a parable mm. without Jesus telling them what it means. Mm. And it's this Jew, Gentile woman. She, I get it. And so what that means, and so even Jesus has already begun to fill the nations, feed the nations as a prelude to you going out to do it. So that's, it's just brilliant. It's just incredible the way Mark has crafted the stories, these stories together. And obviously, if you do your reading like Mark 6, then Mark 7, then the next day, Mark 8, you're going to miss the linkings unless you kind of put all these together and, and paste them all together. So. All right. You've convinced me that this has been a fun night. I, okay, I think cool. watching your face, you've definitely had fun uh, teaching. <laughs> yeah. Okay, good.
you know, we're not going to continue going through every chapter in Mark. Are there other examples uh, that people should look for? Is this the sandwich section in Mark? No, sandwiches occur throughout. I mean, the first one that I really notice in my own reading would be in Mark chapter three, but you probably can find them in earlier Mark one and Mark two. Uh, the women at the tomb would be another one in Mark 6, 15 and 16. They watch Jesus being buried and then uh, they, they come at the tomb and uh, things like that. So uh, Peter's denial, I mentioned already, he denies Jesus. And then they cut to Jesus being interrogated. And then they go back to Peter's denial of Jesus. In Mark 13, Jesus pronounces judgment upon the temple and it's going to be destroyed. Right before that, you have a woman giving two small copper coins at the temple. Mm-hmm. And right after that, so that's, that's the end of Mark 12, Mark 13, he says the temple is going to be destroyed because it's under judgment. Mark 14, a woman anoints Jesus. Ah, what you have is two people worshiping at the temple, mm-hmm. right? Two women worshiping at the temple, both being praised for what they're doing, even though the Pharisees and religious leaders are being condemned uh, in the first account. And in the middle, the temple is going to be destroyed. And what's the answer is Jesus is the real temple. Mm-hmm. So that woman who anoints Jesus in chapter 14, she's anointing Jesus as, as the temple in fulfillment of the one that's going to be destroyed. So it's all over. And, and that theme even comes up in Jesus's trial. Uh, the, the idea, the false accusation they yes. had against him as uh, he said he was going to destroy the temple because they right. misheard. Okay. So, yeah. yeah so, yeah. So I, hopefully if, if anything is happening in here, people are hearing this saying, a Bible study is not merely opening up a chapter reading and then putting it again till putting away till tomorrow where you could read the next chapter. The the narrative is interconnected while chapter and verse divisions are so helpful to us. Like, yeah. like the numerous times you've been referencing passages and, and everyone could just follow along. That was not Mark's original plan. And so don't let those things limit you when you read the passage or else you'll miss the story that Mark's actually trying to tell. Yeah. yeah. Let me also clarify though. That doesn't mean that you can't read. I don't want somebody walking away from this going, oh, wow, this is way over my head. There's no way I can mm-hmm, read the gospel mm-hmm. and understand it unless people explain it to me. No, you're going to get mm-hmm. understanding from it. And you're going to see things like have faith and believe. Yep. You might walk away going, why could he not do a miracle in Nazareth? I don't get it. Oh, because I didn't connect these two stories together. So you might still have these questions out there, but you're still going to get it. You're going to go, hey, Peter denied knowing Jesus. Wow. And Jesus confesses the truth and he gets him crucified for the sake of Peter. You might not recognize the fact that there was a sandwich. It's okay. Not mm-hmm. a big, it's fine. As you go deeper. And so the point of that actually is the Bible is meant to be read or heard and read again and read again and read again. And so every time we go deeper and deeper and deeper. So the first time you read it, it's fine. This is great. You can do Sunday school classes on it. You can do Bible studies on it or personal devotions on it and get what you need out of it. But you also need to seek deeper study and figure out how, how Mark has constructed this to bring out other meanings and significances that you might not have caught the first time. Yeah. And if you're doing your read through the Bible in a year plan and it has you going through chapters, Hey, that's fine. Do that. But what we're talking about is so often, and I see this so often where folks will say, Oh, I'm in this deep Bible study and we really go deep. And and what that means is they spend a lot of time in minutia and they actually don't, they don't understand the book but they've gone and I've looked up every word in the Strong's Concordance or something like that. And it's like, yeah, but you don't know the original language. So it doesn't, you know, you know, there's just all these things that you're missing out on. And it's like the, the best thing that you could do is 
when you're reading a, a book or one of the best ways you could study something, if you want to try to go deep, understand the story that's trying to be told, understand right. the, the actual theme that's being told. And even in something like a letter, which isn't a story, it's not a narrative, but Paul is writing a letter, <laughs> you know, or James is writing a letter. All these guys right. are writing something that is, is a, a, a contained unit of thought um, yeah. and not just individual standalone chapters. So always get, you got to pay attention to that uh, because, because all the writers are going to be uh, constructing thoughts based on that first. And then you can get to those other things later. But if, mm-hmm. if you want to go deep into a study, first understand the story itself and what's actually yeah. being, trying to be communicated. And I would say, that's a great point. I, I would say that that's actually more important than studying the minutia mm-hmm. because you'll never finish this one gospel. Probably if you study the, study the minutia, let alone the entire story of the entire old and new Testament, it's just too big. So I think, Studying the minutiae is okay. I highly recommend, for example, memorizing scripture. So memorize a verse here and a verse there. But the big picture story is more significant. And I think we're better served if we spend our time doing that. Instead of preaching through the Bible, I'm going to preach through, you know, the book of Romans in five years. Like, Mm -hmm. yeah, no, don't do that. Just because no one's going to remember anything from. Yeah, no, (laughs) exactly. And then, and then in the course of those five years, they didn't hear all those other stories and all the other parts of the gospel that they missed out on because we were stuck in one particular theme and you could, so I I don't, I just don't recommend that. Yep. Yeah. Very good. So, so next time what we'll do is we'll talk about the structure of the gospel. How is it outlined? And we'll kind of highlight a couple other points. So within the outlines, there is the sandwiching that Mark uses to highlight the key themes. We've already seen a couple of key themes, having faith and believing uh, things of that nature there, and, and the mission of the disciples to go out and, and preach the gospel and them to be the means to which Jesus does his work, etc. But we're also going to find out, hey, what's the structure of this gospel? How does, why does Mark only have Jesus going to Jerusalem one time? And, and how can I understand it better just by looking at the action and the way things are going there? And then we'll, we'll talk about some of the things in our, our last session. Awesome. Hey, it's exciting stuff. We're halfway through the gospel of Mark in two weeks. Look at this. So (laughs) hope to see everyone next week. uh, As we continue on the story, keep reading through Mark uh, a couple times this week, if you can, and try to look for those themes of sandwiching that happens and see what else that pops up. Maybe we'll comment on it next week. See everyone soon. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. Please subscribe to and like our podcast. You can follow Rob's blog at DeterminedTruth.com or purchase his books on Amazon.com. See you next time.